two. All right, everybody. Whoa, a little hot there. Hi, um, welcome to Benchmark. My name is Drew Fitzgerald. Um, hey, Sam, good to see you. It's a smaller group, uh, which I love. This is the first time we've ever done this ministry. Very first. Um, and I'm really excited because it's one way uh, that we are trying to get some really good, deeper theology into the Watermark body. Now, if you're not from Watermark, we're really glad you're here. We'll just say the church in general, getting this information into the church where we can't just, we're not just going to know it, we're going to practice it as well. Um, this may be a little deeper than you may be used to going to uh, in church, but some of the things we're going to be talking about are the basic things of faith that throughout the church's history, these are things that were assumed um, that a lot of people would know. I'm not cutting y'all down if y'all don't know it. Um, But things about the Trinity, uh, what do we believe about the Bible? How does God's character affect our everyday lives? These are very applicable things to know. I have a lot of information to cover tonight, so don't get too uh, bogged down in all of the information. Um, But real quick... uh, Someone can speak up. Why did you come tonight? What was it about maybe the blurb or the class that really interested you? The Triune God. Okay, Trinity. Yeah. Because you don't understand it. Yeah. Hey, me neither. Um, that's great. Yes, John. Awesome. Watermark has something when you're free. I feel like we're doing something all the time. You too? Excellent. Um, That's great. Well, like you know, the class is called Benchmark. Does anyone know what a benchmark is? Um, If you're familiar with um, the outdoors, a benchmark, there's a picture right there on the left. It's a little physical metal disc that the U.S. Geologic, Geologic Survey put down at different places, uh, usually at like the peaks of mountains or high points. And it is a physical marker that represents a little mark on a map. And if you're lost in the woods and you find a benchmark, it is an easy way to orient yourself to the world around you. So that you can look at that physical marker, match it to where you are on a map and say, oh, this is where I am. In the same way that that little metal disc is a uh, way to orient yourself in the world, we believe the Bible is a benchmark that orients you to the world as in worldviews and theologies. Um, it is a way that we say, this is where we are, this is where God is, this is where we're going, and so this is where we're pointed. And it's a great way to say, here's truth and here's falsehood. Um, a lot of people today will say there's no truth, um, that there's every way is a good way to to go, every, and so to speak, every way, any direction you go will get you home. Well, if you're on a map, imagine maybe it's your iPhone or you're looking at a map um, and you say, I want to get to um, Chipotle on Forest. How do I get there? Well, first you have to know where you are. If you just say, hey, I don't know where I am. How do I get somewhere? It doesn't really help you much. You have to know where you are first. That's really the focus of the class is where are we in biblical script, in biblical theology. Um, This is, this is our schedule for the class. Um, This week we're going to be talking about the Bible. 
Uh, what does the Bible say about itself? What do we believe about the Bible? Uh, what is the theology of the Bible? Um, and then next week, we're going to kind of talk about the so what. So the order of the class is going to be the, the odd weeks, weeks one, three, and five, are kind of the black and white of the picture. What's the theology? What do we believe? Maybe some of the heavier stuff. And the even weeks, weeks two, four, and six, are going to be the color for the picture. They're going to be much more small group based, really discussion based. And we're going to bring some really practical examples in to talk about, hey, this theology, how does it really matter to us? Like the Trinity, is that actually a big deal? And should that affect how we live our everyday lives? Um, Why are you here? Some of you might be here for knowledge, uh, which is awesome. We're going to be getting a lot of it out, probably more than you can, well, I know more than you can retain for sure, uh, more than I could probably retain. Um, But a danger with knowledge is that what are you going to do with that knowledge? A lot of times, especially with theology, the, the topic is so big and so intoxicating, so to speak, that once you learn it, you almost feel like you're, uh, or the temptation is to feel like you're superior to other Christians. Well, I know all of this, and they don't know that. Um, but 1 Corinthians 1 through 3, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If someone claims to know something, he does not know to the degree that he needs to know. But if someone loves God, he knows God. Knowledge is good. But we don't want to become spiritual bobbleheads where we take all this information and we just walk around with a puffed up head. We want to be able to give that to other people and actually use it. Um, Some of you might be here to experience God. Know more about God and feel God in your everyday lives. And that's great because we want to feel God's presence. We want to know God. We want to be in tune with the Spirit in our everyday lives. But we don't want to totally rely on experience. A lot, because a lot of times when that happens, we let feelings be our guide. And if there's one thing true about feelings and emotions is that they're going to change. And so we don't want to totally rely on that. We want to rely on wisdom. Uh, Proverbs 4, acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. Do not forget and do not turn aside from the words I speak. That's Solomon speaking to his son. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will guard you. Wisdom is a good, good thing. So you kind of see this blend of a sitting theology and a kneeling theology is what I'll call it. Sitting theology is what we're doing right now, where we sit down and we discuss lofty things. You go and you have coffee with someone, and you have a really intelligent conversation, or you leave and you're just like, man, I feel a lot smarter from that. That was very beneficial. Um, But we want to make that a kneeling theology, where we know it, but we're submitted to God through it. That, it's, that it makes us rely more on God. So my goals for the class for you are to inform your mind and your heart. Because the theology really isn't worth much if we don't see God as more beautiful and we don't love him more through it. There are a ton of theologians who know all of this stuff we're going to share over the next six weeks who do not know God, may not even believe that there is a God. So the knowledge itself isn't enough. We need to practice it and then see God as more beautiful through it. Um, A great verse for that is Philippians 3.10-11. through My aim is to know Him and the power of His resurrection, the mind, and become like Him in His death so that by any means possible I may attain 
resurrection from the dead, to know and become. Systematic theology cannot radiate supernatural beauty unless the thinker himself or herself be shaped and moved by the Holy Spirit. Don't let this become a mental exercise. And one of the best ways to do that is over these next six weeks if you devote yourself to prayer with this information. Go to God with it. Um, Another way that will really help you internalize the information and then practice it is this little book, um, The Story Begins. Um, well, got a little sound there. Um, this is a companion book. I'm not going to be teaching straight through this, but the topics are in there. Um, the authority of the Bible, the triune God, and the good and great God. And each chapter is broken down into three parts when you look at it, believing, behaving, and becoming. Um, we're going to split that up a little bit, and I'll let you know what we'll be doing over the weeks. But this is just for your edification. This is for you. Um, if you want to dive in and do it more, that's awesome. If this ends up being something that's not 100% helpful, struggle through it, work through it, see what you can glean from it, but I'm not going to come in here and say, hey, did everyone do their homework? Um, so this is a companion book, but this is not uh, what I'm strictly following for all the information. Um, we need to start with this. What is theology? What do you think? How would you answer that question? Study of God. Very good. Anyone else? That's about as clear as it can get. The study of God. Really, the words of God is what theology means. It's the Greek word theos put with the Greek word logos. Theology, the words of God. Um, And it is truth about God. Uh, Any claim that is made about God or a divine spiritual anything is a theological statement. Um, Saying that I'm not theological or you don't have to be theological is a theological statement. Um, So we're all theologians. Everyone in here is a theologian. Put that at the end of your Twitter bio or on your Facebook page, theologian, because you are. Um, And the thing is, some of our theology is good, And some of it, well, it may not be so good. Maybe a little diseased. So hopefully we can work through a lot of that. Uh, Theology is also the truth about God. Um, And the way I'm going to be talking about the theology is this is biblical truth. This is God, who God is, um, how He works, and how we should worship Him. Um, Right doctrine is an easy way to put that. Now, when I say doctrine, a lot of people might get a little bit antsy because doctrine can be a a, uh, baggage word in some ways. Some people in here may have come from churches where um, they feel like doctrine was just hammered into them and it left you with a bad experience. Um, Doctrine, all it means is teaching. Um, Watermark isn't a very uh, traditional church, so to speak. We don't... um, strongly rely on denominational traditions, but we do strongly rely on dogma because it is right teaching. Um, if you, anytime the Bible says the word teaching, um, it is the word uh, didosko, which is doctrine. It's where we get our word doctrine from. And anytime the word teacher shows up, it's the same word just turned into a person. And 59 out of 77 times the word teacher shows up in the New Testament, it's talking about Jesus. Christ is our teacher. He's the source of our doctrine. Um, Tim Keller, if you're familiar with him, I'm a fan of his. 
He's got a great quote about doctrine. Um, I've always been impressed by the contrast between contemporary strategies for coping with stress and Paul's counsel for how to get inner peace. Modern approaches tell you to take time off, get a better work-leisure balance, to block negative and guilty thoughts, to exercise, to learn relaxation techniques. Modern books never tell stressed people, think about the big questions in life. Where are we from? Where are we going? What is the meaning of life? Can you imagine that if a if you went to a psychiatrist and they said, well, just think about the big, heavy stuff in life. They wouldn't do that. They'd probably say, go, you know, a lot of relaxation books are get some time alone, go out in nature, look at a sunset. And while that may be a time of peace um, and learning work-leisure balance might be peaceful, uh, that won't alleviate stress. It'll give you a break from it. But Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, think about such things, and the God of peace will be with you. In short, the world tells you to get peace by not thinking too hard. Christianity tells you that you get peace by thinking very hard and learning, grasping, rejoicing in, and resting in the truths and doctrines of the Word of God. So learn biblical doctrine for your health. Um, I love that quote, because think about it. If you think about the big things in life, where did I come from? Well, God created me for a purpose. Any sources of anxiety and stress with work, I'm working too hard, with money, with um, kids, with uh, home repairs, automobiles, wherever your source of stress might be, thinking about doctrine is is the way the Bible says, hey, this is how we can alleviate that stress. When Matthew talks about, hey, set your mind on things above, seek first the kingdom of God and the rest will be added to you, he's saying God is in control. If you know God, if you know who he is and how he works in your life and seek his kingdom first, he's going to take care of the rest. So doctrine can be a great, very practical way to experience more peace in our everyday lives. Good doctrine will give us five things. Correct knowledge of God and how to have a relationship with Him. That's major. Objective truth, separating from falsehood. Hey, how do we know what is right and what is wrong? If someone makes a religious claim, how do we know if it's right or wrong? We measure it by the Bible. A correct worldview defines reality. When I say truth, um, in biblical truth, I don't mean a truth. I don't mean a certain variety of truth. I mean truth that defines the contours of reality as we know it. Um, Truth that defines everything we know, can see, and observe. Um, It creates correct behavior. Knowing who we are, knowing who God is, and how he wants us to behave creates correct behavior. It's a vehicle and product of correct ministry of the Holy Spirit, so it helps us serve others and serve God. So what is theology? Very simply, it's just faith seeking understanding. That's a very simple way to to, to think about it. You don't have to know all of these answers to be a Christian. Um, to believe in God, to be saved, you don't have to know all these answers. But faith that seeks understanding will do so through theology. If you want a little bit more detailed um, definition, uh, faith that seeks to organize and articulate truth about God and his relation to all existence in the light of Scripture. So that's where we're going. Today we're going to talk about God-given truth. How has God revealed himself to humanity, to us, um, and people throughout history. How has God revealed himself? Well, there's really two big ways that's happened. 
Um, the first is called general revelation. Um, general revelation is truth that is available to all people at any time in history. Does anyone know some sources of general revelation where truth has been available to all people throughout history? Creation. Creation. Excellent. Very good. Um, it's available in our conscious. Consciences. Knowing, uh, it's available in reason. Um, if you're interested in apologetics and really thinking hard through philosophy or anything else, it, it's involved with our mental faculties. Uh, morality. What is right and wrong? Do all people have a sense of what is right and wrong? Um, and our senses. How can we observe the things around us? It's seen through nature. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Because what can be known about God is plain to them, for God has made it plain to them. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen because they have understood through what has been made. So all men are without excuse. That creation is a way that God has revealed himself to us. Um, I'm the kind of guy who I love uh, going out and praying just in nature on my own. Being around trees, mountains, beaches, sunsets, what have you. Um, Being up in the mountains at night when you can just see the entire Milky Way is just something that is amazing to me. Some, a place that I feel God's presence and I just see who God is very clearly. And all men have been able to experience nature if you've been blind or see creation. They are all privy to it. Um, but what can we actually know through general revelation? Well, um, Psalm 19.1, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. What does that say we can know? What was that? That he's real, he exists. Yeah, he's glorious and he made everything. We can know those two things from at least the sky and what the sky is proclaiming. Acts 14, 16 and 17. In the past, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, but he never left them without evidence of himself and his goodness. For instance, he sends you rain and good crops and gives you food and joyful hearts. So things God gives to all people. But what does it actually tell us about God? That he exists and he's good. So we have a couple of things that we can know through general revelation. God is glorious. He made everything. He exists and he's good. But can we see evidence of Christ in nature? Is there evidence of, that would lead you to a saving faith through creation, through general revelation? Well, no, there's not. Uh, And this isn't to get into the question of, well, what about those who haven't heard? Um, I'm I'm not sure how God is going to, to, uh, how he's revealed himself to all people on earth. Um, So I can't answer for the hypothetical um, guy in Africa who's never heard. But as far as I know, everyone who's gone on a mission trip to Africa and even a group who went up the Amazon to a tribe that they thought had never heard the word of God, the people there had Bibles or had knowledge of Christ before they got there. The tribe in the Amazon 
JP took a group from the porch, our young adults ministry, up the Amazon to a tribe that had supposedly never heard to talk to them about Christ. And they said, oh yeah, we know about Christ. Like, we already know. And so, um, all that to say, general revelation won't get you to saving faith in who, um, in what Christ has done for us. But it will, will tell you about God. That being said, we need special revelation, which is God's direct self-disclosure in a specific time and a specific place. And we have two really big ones. Number one, Jesus. Jesus is the major specific revelation of God showing the world who he is in a specific time and a specific place. Colossians 15, 1, 15.20, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for all things on heaven and on earth were created by him, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions, whether principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He himself is before all things and all things are held together in him. He is the head of the body, the church, as well as the beginning, the firstborn among the dead, so that he himself may become first in all things. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in the Son and through him to reconcile all things to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. That God was pleased to reveal everything about who he was through Jesus. Do y'all remember when um, some Pharisees come up to Jesus and say, hey, show us the Father? Um, You say you're the Son, show us the Father. Do y'all remember what his response was? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That, hey, I am the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, the Son is the radiance of His, God's glory, and the exact representation of His essence. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. And so when he had accomplished the cleansing for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That Jesus is, your translation may say, the exact representation of God. Made flesh. Jesus is our big, number one, special revelation. The next one is the Bible. The Bible is a specific way that God's revealed himself. Um, and he's, um, we're going to get into, can we trust it? Um, we're going to talk about what inspiration, inerrancy, and um, infallibility mean. But really briefly here, the Bible did not, was not birthed out of someone's mind. They didn't say, hey, wouldn't it be neat if we wrote this down? No prophecy of Scripture was ever born out of a prophet's own imagination. For no prophecy was ever born out of human impulse. Rather, men carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That prophecy is not just someone's idea that they came up with. That's in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. That it's not just someone coming out and saying, hey, I've got an idea. Wouldn't it be neat if we talked about this? In the Old Testament, if you stood up in front of the nation of Israel and you said, I'm a prophet, I have a word from God, and you told everybody your word, if you predicted something and it didn't come true, they stoned you. Because you were saying that God has given me a specific message. He has spoken to me, 
and I'm going to tell you what it is. And when it doesn't come true, number one, well, yeah, you're a liar. Um, but number two, you are defaming the character of God. Because you're saying that God spoke to me something that didn't come true. So not only am I a liar, but you're claiming that God spoke falsehood. Um, I don't think people necessarily do that nowadays um, to a major extent. There are people who stand up and say, I'm a prophet. There's even people who stand up and say, I'm Jesus Christ. And they do um, terrible things in the name of God. Uh, But think about it. What if someone says... Um, hey, God spoke to me and they wanted me to tell you this. Or um, God told me this. God doesn't speak in degrees of truth. Like it either is from him or it's not. It's either true or it isn't. It's not kind of true. If God speaks to you individually in a very specific way that can't be measured by Scripture... That you're saying, well, this is an extra word that he's given me. You're claiming to have unique, special revelation. That if God spoke to you, you're saying he has disclosed himself right here, right now, to me. And this isn't just for me. This is, if God's speaking to you, you better tell everybody. Because that is a big deal. Um, I might be messing in someone's Kool-Aid right here, but... Think about the book, uh, Jesus Calling, for example. Um, The author of that book says that Jesus gave her a specific devotional for every day of the week. And the book itself is written in first person as if Jesus was speaking directly to you. It's kind of claiming special revelation, which is a big deal. Now, am I saying that God doesn't Um, direct our lives individually. No, I'm not saying that. He does. And I can't tell you what to make of your experience, but I can tell you how to evaluate that experience, how to bring wisdom into that situation. Um, That if you say, uh, you know, I've felt God's presence or this happened, I can't argue with the fact that, yeah, you may have felt that or you may have had a dream that was very profound, or you may have heard something or felt directed in a certain way. But if it doesn't line up with Scripture, you're saying that God has contradicted Himself. And if it's not something that's beneficial for everybody, then you're claiming that God just wants you to know that it's not a message for everyone. And that's never, never, never been God's character. In the Old Testament, over and over and over again, in the Psalms, in the Prophets, God comes to the nation of Israel and says, you are supposed to be a light to the nations. That you are my nation of priests to tell the world about who I am. And again, in Peter, when he looks at the church and says, you are a kingdom, or you are a royal priesthood. um, That you are, I mean, how many verses can we talk about evangelism? Um, The Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I have taught you. That there's no message of God that's been, hey, keep that a secret, don't talk about it, that was just for you. Now, um, we can, we're going to talk a little bit more next week about how God might speak to you and direct you and what is God's will. Um, 
But we need to be very careful if you're saying God gave me a message, me uniquely and not anyone else, because that is a big, big claim. Every scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness that the person dedicated to God may be capable and equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3.16. There is no such thing as a throwaway verse in the Bible. All scripture is inspired by God. God is a God of purpose. That means if he has taken the initiative to give this to us, then it is purposeful for a reason. Man, I don't know how many times in the Old Testament I'll go through a genealogy, or in Matthew there's a genealogy, and it's just a list of names, and they're hard to pronounce. It's just like, oh, okay, well, I'll just skip over this and get to the good stuff. It's there for a purpose. And you don't have to go far in study Bibles or in other resources to figure out why it might be there and how it's beneficial. But there's no such thing as a throwaway verse. Um, If y'all are on Join the Journey in Watermark, it's a daily devotional that comes in your inbox. We're going through a book that a lot of people have stayed away from, Leviticus. How are all these laws beneficial? If there's mildew in my house, burn everything? Oh, gosh. I mean, what spiritual benefit is there in that? Um, But looking at these verses in context, when they're written to a, especially like, for example, the mildew verse, a verse you might just skip over. Hey, why, or the ones after it, why do all my pots and pans have to be in specific places? Um, This is a nomad tribe who's wandering in the desert and has been for almost a generation. They don't have any medicine. So if mildew comes in, you could get, you know, respiratory infections and a vast majority of your camp could be wiped out. Your food, your livestock, it was a big deal. So that verse isn't throwaway because God's saying, hey, I care about you, and I want to keep you healthy and safe. I don't want some um, bacteria to come through and wipe all of you out. I want you to care about uh, keeping everyone else safe as well. And the people of God are supposed to look out for each other. He says that all the time in the Old Testament. So if if all of your stuff disappears, it's not... Well, sorry, man. Hope you can keep up with the rest of the uh, traveling caravan. Everyone else is going to chip in and help out. Um, that those who have more were given more so they could help those who had less. Oh, gosh, so the Bible. Here's a, this, is, this is the meat of what we're talking about. The Bible is special revelation. It is, there's a lot to it. People make a lot of claims about the Bible. Um, what are some objections Actually, do this. Turn in with your table and discuss some of the objections that you have heard with the Bible. When you talk about the Bible or says the Bible says this, what some people say, wait, hold on. These, these are some of the problems that we have with the Bible. So turn and discuss that for a second. All right. I hate cutting this short because I see a lot of you are really getting into some good conversation, which is awesome. Um, hey, and, and the, the even weeks that we're coming together is going to be a lot of discussion-based and a lot with your tables because I think theology is a very community-based thing. And I'm not just saying that because we're at Watermark Community Church. Um, have any of you ever had a dream or a brilliant idea that was awesome until you told someone else? Yeah, it'd be dangerous if we did that with God. If we had something that sounded great in our heads, then as soon as it came out of your mouth, you're like, oh, okay, that doesn't, that doesn't sound right. 
But if you have your, this theology in your head, it may direct the way that you live your life. So it's really good to evaluate that in groups. Um, if you came in late, my name is Drew. I'm a member of our equipping team here at Watermark. I help serve with our um, apologetics ministry. I'm glad you could make it. Um, what were some of the objections that your table was discussing? Translations. Okay, can we... It was written by men. Was translations, we can't trust the translations? Where did that come from? So, okay, so you're talking about like ESV, NASB, King James. Okay. Different versions. Okay. Okay, there's been books that have been left out. Yeah, how did the Bible get put together? Like how how did how did all of these different different sixty six books just kind of mesh together? Yeah, what else? Where's the proof? Where's the proof? <laughs> Great. Um, where can we can we rely on this? Is there any proof, or is this just something that we hold on to? A book with very very thin pages. Um, I mean, no book has as thin pages as the Bible does. Um, <laughs> Any other objections? How could anything written so long ago be, you know, appropriate or applicable? Yeah. How could anything written so long ago be applicable today? And it was written in a totally different culture. Mm-hmm. How does it relate to our culture? That's great. These are good questions. Any others? Creation. Science and history. Does science disprove the Bible? Has history ever disproven the Bible? Yeah, those are good. Those are big questions. Those are questions that I I heard someone at this table say, how do you answer that? Like, where do we get an answer? And I hope that every single one of those questions is at least generally answered for you. I won't be able to get into the details of all of them, but rest assured, there is an answer for every one of those questions. And I want to get into those. And hey, this is a smaller group. So if you have a question at some point, raise your hand. And once I get to a stopping point, I'll, we'll get that question. Okay? Uh, I have no problem doing that. I'm not just, if I'm on a roll, I'll try to get, get to my point and make it. And then we'll keep going. Um, yeah, objections to the Bible. It's just a bunch of old stories that have been written down over time. They're just stories. Um, It's full of contradictions and can't be trusted. Whoever wrote the Bible just wanted power. That this was, especially in the New Testament time, whoever wrote this just wanted religious power. Um, And the Bible can't be true because science and history have disproven it. Um, I want to touch on that one really quick because we're not going to get there very much when we're talking about the canon or um, claims we make about the Bible. Um, Well, science and history have not disproven the Bible. As far as history and archaeological findings go, if anything, they've more so supported biblical claims than denied them. Um, Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the, I mean, middle of the 20th century in a cave. A shepherd um, threw a rock into a cave and heard some pottery break and went back there, and there was a bunch of pottery filled with uh, parchments. And he thought, hmm, this would make great fire starter. So we started making fires out of this parchment. Come to find out, this is one of the earliest copies of the Old Testament that we have. It was held by a 
group in Qumran. Uh, I believe they were called the Essenes. They were a separatist group. They're kind of like um, the Sadducees or the Pharisees, except for they were totally saying everything in Israel right now is wrong. We're going to go in the desert and do our own thing. Um, but there's books of Isaiah, like the book of Isaiah is long, and it looks almost, or it look, I'll say almost, but I'm going to clarify that. It looks almost identical to the Isaiah we have today. Now, why do I say almost? Well, the biblical um, manuscripts that we've found are 99.9% accurate with the Bibles that we have today. Now, where does that point one come from? Names like Jesus might come out, um, Jesus, or Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, or um, verbs might, might be, um, or not verbs, nouns might be changed from singular to plural. Um, there may be an article, or in Greek and Hebrew, the syntax is such that sometimes you don't have to have an article. Um, that it's understood from a singular noun that it is just one. Um, and so all of the differences that there are in the manuscripts are not affecting any doctrine. They don't change any doctrine, and none of them are in places that change any sort of practice or worship. Um, they are all, and there's a whole uh, realm of study on this called textual criticism. And none of the differences that we found in the manuscripts affect the meaning of the Bible we have today and all line up with the original manuscripts that we found. So you can rest assured that history has upheld the Bible, and we'll get more into that later. Has science disproven the Bible? Well, no. Um, If God has created everything, which we're going to say, yes, God has created everything— then investigating what he's created should not lead us away from God. That if we investigate nature, we should see things that uphold who God is. In fact, some of the earliest scientists, early scientists, some of the some of the greats, Galileo um, and Newton, they were saying, "Hey, we want to investigate." the world around us so that we can see the mind of God. We want to know God more through our investigation. Now, a lot of you might be thinking about, well, what about creation? What about evolution? What about these things? Well, think about Genesis 1 and 2. Um, They were written to a nomadic people wandering through the desert. Their purpose wasn't to say, hey, scientifically, this is what happened this is how what happened. And so there are, there are a couple of different um, theories for how God created everything. And if you want to know a great place to go and see those in, in just an article, probe.org is a great website. Uh, one of our members, Ray Bolin, Dr. Ray Bolin, um, he's a biologist, has written an article um, that explains um, young earth creationism, that God created everything in seven days, and the earth is, about, is a couple thousand years old. He explains um, progressive creationism, that throughout time God created more animals um, and has created the earth with the appearance of age. Um, or wait, create, uh, progressive creationism is the world is an old earth, um, but God has created over time. It wasn't a literal seven days. And then there's uh, theistic evolution, which says God directed evolution. And, each of, and 
Theistic evolution has a lot of implications um, for what we believe, and it's more so the one that is saying, hey, I'd rather side with science than what Scripture is saying. But don't let someone say, hey, science has disproven the Bible, because it hasn't. In Genesis 1, we do see that God has created the earth in days, um, but science has no information that is saying, no, that's not true. Um, I lead a ministry called Great Questions on Monday nights where people can come and ask any question they want. And there's a guy who comes every week um, who doesn't even believe there's a God, but is willing to sit down and listen to what we say and talk with us. And a couple weeks ago, um, came to the point where he's saying, logically speaking, it is on equal logical footing to say God created everything. There is a divine being that created everything with any of the other theories of how we have what we have. There are equally logical theories that science does not disprove the Bible. And um, our definition of inerrancy, when we get into that, I think that will help shine some more light onto that um, issue. This is a awesome, what I'm about to share is an awesome uh, method for telling people that they can trust the Bible. Um, our equipping director, Blake Holmes, came up with it. It's five Ps. Five Ps um, to showing someone that they can trust the Bible. Now, no one of these areas uh, is conclusive in and of itself. They all lead to a conclusive direction, but together they make a very compelling argument. It kind of works like a symphony. Each part may be beautiful on its own, but when they're all put together, something very powerful happens. Number one, profession. What does the Bible say about itself? And we've been through those two verses at the beginning, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed, that this comes from a true divine source, and it's beneficial. 2 Peter 1.20-21, that none of this prophecy came out of someone's own brain that it was all inspired by God. It all has its roots in God. You know, in court, if you are going to try someone, you want their testimony of what happened. You want to hear what they say happened. So if we're going to put the Bible on trial, so to speak, let's understand what the Bible is saying about itself, that it is the Word of God and it is beneficial and it has its roots in God that is inspired by Him. Um, Second P, production. How was the Bible made? Um, did anyone in here watch Lost? Uh, there was a series of numbers in that TV show, and this is going to kind of look like it. Uh, 1,500, 66, 43, 1. Over 1,500 years, 66 books were written by 40, some people think more than 40, at least 40 authors on three continents with one thematic and theological purpose. Think about that. 1,500 years, 66 different documents by 40 different people on three continents with one thematic and theological purpose. That is astounding. There is no document on earth that could touch that. And I am going to suggest that there is not one that we could create that could touch that. 1,500 years. I mean, think about what was happening 1,500 years ago. If someone started then and then finished now, what kind of document would we have? It wouldn't be the Bible, that's for sure. It wouldn't look anything close 
to as unified as the Bible is. The third P is preservation. How the Bible was preserved. Isaiah 48, this is a great, really simple memory verse. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Really simple. Um, The Bible was preserved. Okay, let's think about some ancient texts. Stick with me here. Um, The Iliad by Homer, that great, powerful, epic poem. It's written in about 800 B.C. The first copy of it, the, the earliest copy that we have of it, was written in about 400 B.C. So 400 years after it was originally written, we have a copy or at least fragments of copies. We weren't, we weren't like handed a bound copy of the Iliad um, and said, oh, this one's from 400, put this on the shelf. They're little fragments of it. We have about 643, maybe more, um, since I put that on there, copies or, of the Iliad, complete copies. That's a lot. It's a lot of an ancient document. One single document, thinking of how difficult it was to produce documents back then, scribal issues, um, having money for parchment, people being literate so they could read it and demand copies. Um, That's a lot of copies. The New Testament was written in about between 500 and 100 A.D. There's going to be some people who disagree with those dates, but at the very latest, 150 A.D., um, the earliest copy that we have is in 200. So 150 or 100 years after the first writing, we get our first copies. And we have 57 hundred copies of the New Testament. We could recreate hundreds of copies of the entire Bible just using early church writings and quotes from people like Irenaeus or, um, oh gosh, of course my mind would go blank when thinking about this, but church fathers, um, we could create the whole Bible just from their documents. But we have 5,700 copies of the Bible written in a shorter time span than any other ancient document with more historical verification and less discrepancy than any other ancient document. Your New Testament is the most verifiable and trustworthy ancient document on earth. Dan Wallace, um, who is a professor down at Dallas Seminary, Uh, is one of the leading authorities on New Testament manuscripts. And he says it this way, the New Testament has an embarrassment of riches. Like, we have so many more New Testament documents. And it's so much more verifiable that it's almost embarrassing when compared to other ancient books. This is one of the most well-preserved books that you have. Um, Scribal traditions, just... A little something that just came to my mind. Hebrew scribal tradition, scribes, it was their job to copy um, Bibles or, um, I guess, scrolls at that time. Um, And you would write one letter at a time. You would look at the document, write the letter down, go back, look at the next letter, and write it down very slowly. And once you were done, you would pick a number going down in rows and a number across and find that letter. And if that letter in what you wrote didn't match the original, it doesn't matter if it's all identically the same. If it's not in the exact same spot, you burn the document. They were serious about how they copied these things. 
They weren't flippant. It's not like um, some silly high schooler plagiarizing a paper where they're just looking at something, copy and pasting. Like they are taking their time and really putting a lot of effort into this. So profession, production, preservation, prophecy, what the Bible foretold that has happened. I'm not going to go through all of these, but there are over 300 prophecies of Jesus alone that he fulfilled. Looking in the Old Testament and in the prophets, there are over 300. Now, the odds of only eight of those being fulfilled are 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That's that number with all those zeros right there. 1 in 10 to the 17 of just eight being fulfilled. That's very near impossible other than that one in whatever. I don't even know what you would call that large number. Quadrillion? I sound like a kindergartner trying to make up a number. Um, the odds of 48 being fulfilled are 1 in 10 to the 157th. That is this number. That is of 48 being fulfilled. I don't even know what it would be for over 300 being fulfilled in one person. It's shocking. Another example, in Isaiah 48, God is speaking to Isaiah, and he's saying, look, the people are going to go into exile. They're going to be exiled, and my shepherd Cyrus will send them back. Cyrus, who's that? That's, That's not a Hebrew name. Man, that's not even the kind of name someone has in Assyria or the Canaanites have. No one has that kind of name. What, who's Cyrus? Israel goes into exile. Land of Judah goes into exile to Babylon. They're under Babylon for a while. A nation called Persia comes in and overtakes them. After a while, the leader of Persia's name is Cyrus. And in Ezra 1, Cyrus makes a decree to send Israel, the people of Israel, the Hebrews, back to their land to rebuild the temple. And he funds it. And if you look in Ezra 1, he's not saying, because I do this. He says, because God has decreed it, I am sending them back. Hundreds of years later, a man by the name is called out to send people back to their nation. A man from a totally different culture with a name that that culture or the ones around it would have never even seen. It's unbelievable. Um, Okay, so profession, production, preservation, prophecy. And the last one, personal testimony. Now, some of you are nodding your heads, and some of you kind of squinting your eyes like, am I seeing that right? Those other ones were awfully scientific and historical. Personal testimony. How has the Word of God changed your life? What has God done specifically in your life that proves that his word is true and it stands? Billions of lives have been changed because of that little book which sits on your bedside table or you have with you tonight or you have on a digital copy of on your iPad or your iPhone. Billions of lives have been changed through that. And more often than not, if you're sharing your faith with someone the prophecies that have been fulfilled aren't very important to them. They want to know, what has it done in your life? How has it changed who you are? How has Christ changed you? Every one of your testimonies is purposeful. 
There aren't testimonies where it's, well, mine's the same old story. You know, I grew up in church. My parents grew up in church. Um, and when I was a teenager, now I'm a Christian. Never, ever, ever discount your testimony. Because it is the story of the eternal, transcendent God coming down and changing your life and redeeming it. And it is powerful. Don't be ashamed of it. And hey, here's an application. Come up with an elevator way to share your faith, a really brief, like one to two minute version of your testimony. Come up with an escalator version, a quick 30 seconds. And then come up with one that if you're ever asked, you could share in front of a group of people, a 15, 20 minute testimony that you know your story and you can share it with people um, and use that in God's life. Because, hey, that glorifies God because you're saying this is how God has moved in my life. And my life is what it is now because of what he has done. It's not because of me, it's because of God. That is glorifying to him. So practice those, those testimonies, use it. Um, a lot of times when you share your testimony, though, people may ask those first four questions. Hey, what does the Bible say about itself? Um, how was it made? How was it preserved? You know, those prophecies aren't really that true. They were added later. Dead Sea Scrolls, no. Um, Isaiah was not added later. We have some proof that it was there very early on. Um, so all five of these together make a very compelling argument uh, for the veracity of Scripture. The big eyes. Here are the ones that we, we get a little churchy that you'll see in uh, doctrinal statements. Um, Inerrant, infallible, and inspired. Um, and in some ways, you're looking at those and you're like, well, inerrant and infallible, those kind of look like the same thing to me. Those look really similar. I just want to make this really simple. Inerrant means the Bible doesn't deceive. The Bible is not deceptive. It's not manipulating. It's not, um, it doesn't lie to us. Um, and here's, here's where we'll bring up the science quote again. Um, inerrancy is the view that when all the facts become known, they will demonstrate that the Bible in its original autographs, that means in its original writings, and correctly interpret as it is entirely true and never false in all it affirms, whether that relates to doctrine or ethics or to the social, physical, or life sciences. Now, the nature of science is revisionary. What do I mean by that? That we're constantly learning more, and everything we know is available to be tested and disproved. You could almost say that the nature of science is to disprove itself over and over and over again to learn more. Do we have all the facts in science? No, we do not. Any scientist worth their salt will say, we do not. If someone says, yes, we have all the facts, they're eluding themselves. Um, uh, a guy wrote a book about the growth of science, and I'm not sure how he measured it, but he said about every 50 years, we replace about 50% of our knowledge, or it becomes more accurate. Problem is, we just don't know which 50% of our knowledge is going to do that. But you can even think about, um, say, the growth in medical knowledge from, since the Civil War, or even since you know, World War II how much more do we know about the body and how it works in medicine? Um, think about cigarettes during World War II that were rationed out to soldiers because it was a calming. They didn't, they didn't know it, that they were cancerous 
or that they would, what, all the havoc that that might wreak on those uh, men and women's lives later on in life. They didn't know that. In the Civil War, if you got shot, they didn't know how to take care of the gangrene, so they might just amputate a leg instead of mending it or dressing it and putting antibiotics on it. We know so much more now. Um, in, I think it was the 18th century, some of the leading medical scientists, it may have been the uh, 16th, believed that there was a little man that lived inside of you called the humunculus. It was just a very small version of yourself, and he lived inside of you, and he took care of everything. It was like the little man that fixed it all. And a lot of people sat around and were saying, that's a good idea. I believe it. Yes, it's true. Um, but obviously, <laughs> that's not true. That's not how it works. We, we are constantly learning more in science and learning more and more and more. And what we have now may be disproved. There's a lot of things that we may think are beneficial now that in 50 years we can't think, oh my gosh, why were we, why were we even doing that? I mean, that was terrible for us, but we had no idea. Um, so science does not have all information, especially thinking about evolution or um, how the world was created. We really don't know. Um, evolution's got a lot of work to do to prove itself as hard fact. There's a lot of evidence that people are saying, hey, th- this is pointing to this is how everything was created. It's kind of where the progressive creationism um, comes in, saying, yes, it looks like there's some sort of animal development, but each new creature, God came down and made a new species. Um, but... Uh, Young earth creationists may say, hey, it, it has the appearance of development because all life is connected. Um, Adam was created with the appearance of age. He wasn't created as a um, zygote that slowly grew. He was created as a man. Um, so science is still learning a lot. Some of the best theories for how everything came about, you know, the, the odds of our earth being here, of... Uh, all the different forces on earth, the gravitational force, the weak and the strong nuclear forces, everything coming together to sustain life is so outrageously large. That, that change is so large. And one of the leading theories right now is that there are innumerable universes that exist. And we're just the one where it worked. That'll take a little bit of faith to believe that. There's, I mean, some string theory and theoretical physicists have worked it out and said, yes, it might look that way in its potential, but man, that is, that is a, a leap. That's not a founded fact to say that's how the world came about. So we don't know everything in science. But inerrancy says that when we do, the Bible will be found as true, and it will stand. Um, if, and hey, if someone makes a scientific claim and you aren't sure of it, Don't be ashamed to say, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to trust in God. We just don't know enough, and that's okay. Um, If you don't know, um, you can try to research it. I would encourage you to research it and try to find an answer for someone who has a question. Um, But you may come to a place where you say, I'm not sure, but God has proven himself true in every other area of my life, so I'm going to trust him here. Um, that, that's what it, you very well may come to. And that is not a cop-out. It's just saying that we don't know all the facts yet. Um, infallibility. The Bible is true when it speaks. Now, what do I mean by that? 
that if the Bible is speaking to what marriage should look like, it's true. If, Bible, if the Bible is talking about history, it's true. If the Bible is speaking to any area in your life, how to worship God, it is speaking truthfully. Implications of this, the Bible carries the truth. That when it speaks and it's true, if it's from the mouth of God, then it is the truth. It is not a truth. It is the Word of God made real. And the Bible is our final authority on issues where it speaks. Here's, here's another area where the experience comes up. Um, you have an incredible experience. Something outrageous happens, miraculous, what have you. Weigh it according to Scripture. Has it happened before? What is God saying about um, dreams or experiences or um, feelings? Uh, speaking in tongues. What does the Word of God say about that? What does the Word God, of God say about... Um, ecstatic prayer or a lot of charismatic issues, experiential type things. What does it say about that? This is our final authority. So if it doesn't line up with Scripture, I can't say you didn't have an experience, but what you made of it is probably not true. Experiences can be amazing things that can lead us to a real place of emotional and uh, mental dependence on God, but they don't teach us a whole lot of doctrine or teaching. They don't give us a lot of truth, so to speak. That when you have truth, you can evaluate your experiences and say, this is what happened, or perhaps I misinterpreted it, or I didn't understand it correctly. Um, And I'm, I'm really not trying to rain on anyone's parade here. If you had an experience that was really definitive in your life, that led you to a place of dependence on God, I just want you to know that we need to rely on the Word of God to evaluate those experiences. Todd Wagner says it all the time, I won't argue that you had an experience, but I will argue with what you make of it. And not argue as in a way of, hey, we're going to fight about this, but let's investigate truth. So the Bible is inerrant. It does not deceive. The Bible is infallible. When it speaks, it's telling the truth. And the Bible is inspired. It is God's verbal revelation. It's God's words given to us. Um, And this is um, a definition I got down at Dallas Seminary um, that is pretty clear, and we're just going to walk by it step by step, of what inspiration is. God's superintendence of human authors. So superintendence doesn't mean that he's taking control of their bodies, that they can't control themselves and they just write and they don't know what they're writing and they snap out of it and kind of say, oh gosh, what did I do? Um, that, that, now, that is the experience uh, of Joseph Smith and um, of uh, Muhammad, that the people around them said that they would go into seizures and they would black out and they'd get up and start writing and then just kind of snap out of it, so to speak. Um, that they would not know what was going on, and then they would wake up and they would have these writings in front of them. Um, But when we say inspired, we don't mean that someone is going limp and God has taken over all of their motor control. We're saying that he has come into them where they are and that they are choosing to put this down on paper. That he is moving them so they're responding to God 
but they are acting. Um, and that is expanded. God's superintendence in the human authors so that using their own personalities, you get to know the authors a little bit in what they're writing. You get to know Isaiah and Jeremiah, and you get to know um, a little bit about Moses when he's writing the Pentateuch, what he's like. You learn a lot about Paul's character in his writings, and Peter's, and Mark, and Matthew, and John. Mark has terrible grammar, like really bad. Like It is a hard book to translate because he does not use grammar well. Luke, on the other hand, is sharp. He is a doctor. He is a historian. His grammar is spot on. It, it doesn't flourish. It is just what it needs to be, and there it is, done. Um, Paul is very, very uh, high theology and philosophic, and he's pulling all of these ideas from philosophy in and combating all these things that we won't see on in initial readings that people at the time would be like, wow, he's talking about this guy and this guy. He uses a lot. Um, and there's a really funny quote in Peter, Second Peter, that we'll get to about that. Um, God's superintendence of the human authors so that using their own personalities, they composed and recorded without error. That they wrote down, they thought of how they were going to put it together, they composed it, and they wrote it down without error. His or God's revelation to man in the words of the original manuscript. So God's superintendence of human authors so that using their own personalities, they composed and recorded without error his revelation to man in the words of the original manuscripts. Now, some of you might be saying, whoa, original manuscripts. Do we have those? No, we don't. We don't have those. But at looking at all of the documents that we have through all of the time we have, as early as we have it, we have very, we are convinced and very sure that we know exactly what they do say. Um, the original manuscripts were inspired. The copies, when we say they aren't, that means they, they can be under scrutiny. That when there's errors in them, we don't say, whoa, the Bible's not true. This document says this is wrong. Uh, it says something different than this, so it's wrong, we throw it all out. There's a series of scribal areas, errors that could happen. Someone mishears a, a word, a homonym, um, two words that sound the same, and they write the wrong one down. Um, sometimes scribes would skip a line in a, in a manuscript. They, they would go through different errors. So through textual criticism, we can look at all of these and say, okay, we understand the background of this. We know the people who wrote this. Was there any reason they may have changed this? No. Is there a... Um, a reason in just reading or copying that there may be a difference. And so we can scrutinize those, and through that we have a very, very, very good idea of exactly what the ancient manuscripts said and would say that the Bible you have is what they wrote down. But the original manuscripts are the ones that were inspired. And this goes along right with our doctrinal statement. This is Watermark's doctrinal statement on uh, Scripture. We believe the Bible to be the verbally inspired Word of God without error in the original writings, and the supreme and final authority in doctrine and practice. So the Bible is verbally inspired, it is inerrant, without error, and the supreme final authority, it is infallible. So this is what we as a church believe about the Bible. It is inerrant, it is infallible, and it is inspired. 
So five P's for the trustworthiness of the Bible, three I's for what the Bible says it is. Infallible, inerrant, and inspired. But how do we get our Bible? The canon. How did we get what we have today over all of those years? Well, the Old Testament was put together in three primary ways. Direct revelation. God coming down and speaking to prophets and speaking to specific men at specific times through special revelation in those men's lives. He came down and spoke like he did with the inspiration of the New Testament authors, but um, these were specific events that happened in each of these men's lives that inspired these writings. Direct revelation. For example, Exodus 24.3, Then Moses went down to the people and repeated all the instructions and regulations the Lord had given him. All the people answered with one voice, We will do everything the Lord has commanded. So when Moses went down from Mount Sinai and told every, all the people what God had told them, they didn't say, we're going to do everything that, Mo, that Moses has told us. They said, we're going to ever do everything the Lord has told us. God has spoken specifically to Moses and directly revealed himself to Moses, and we're going to follow what he says. Hebrews 1.1, the New Testament also attests to this. Long ago, God spoke in many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. Writing wasn't as prevalent in the Old Testament times. For a nomadic tribe of people, coming across parchment was rare. Um, And so God was more so speaking to his people through specific times, and then it was recorded later through official written records of genealogies and events. Um, And part of this, the background of that is an oral tradition of storytelling. And some people might say, okay, oral tradition, stories. Well, that, that's easier to change than a written tradition because there's no way to check it. Many, many, many uh, professors of antiquity, um, people with much smarter than I am, studying um, the Near Eastern area and cultures across the world that have oral traditions, prove that the restrictions around oral traditions are just as, if not more strict for the writing traditions. That oral tradition is not something where it's just, well, uh, I'll tell you a bedtime story, and if I get it wrong, well, whatever, just tell it to your kids. It'll be right. It's not, the Bible's not the longest game of telephone. Do you all know that game? I tell you something, and you tell it to someone else, and we see how it changes after it goes around the circle. Um, that oral traditions and cultures that rely on it take it very seriously. There's usually one person who is the keeper of the history. And that's his role in the community. It is very serious deal. So oral tradition does not discount what we have at all. Um, but that was later put down into written genealogies and events. For example, in First and Second Kings, when it's just blazing through all those different kings of the north and the south after Israel has split, many, many times it will say this. The rest of the events of Jeroboam's reign include all his wars and how he ruled. Those are recorded in the book of history of the kings of Israel. That is First Kings 14, 19. Um, in Chronicles, it will say, it'll tell a, an event and it'll say, and isn't the rest of his life written down in the Chronicles of the nation? It'll reference another book where it's all put down and say, hey, if this happened, if you want to know more, go check the record. And genealogies were so serious to people back then that you didn't have, um, you weren't known by your profession, you weren't known by your last name, you were known by whose son or daughter you were. Um, 
in Hebrew, the word ben means son of. So if you see um, Ephraim ben Joseph, that means Ephraim, son of Joseph, that you were known by your father. And that all goes back to this idea of, um, okay, it's going to get big words now, federal headship. Federal headship means that the person who's in charge represents everybody. So the king is a representative of the entire nation. Your father or whoever's in charge of your family is a representative of the entire family. Whoever leads the tribe of Benjamin or the tribe of Judah, he is a representative for everyone. He speaks for all of you. That if he does something, you're all held accountable for it. So whose son or daughter you were is very important. And they would keep strict genealogies of, hey, who, who do I go back to? If you look at Ezra and Nehemiah, even after the time when the nation of Israel was taken out and gone to, going to Babylon, and they, had, they say, hey, these are the people who returned, they're saying, hey, this is who returned, this is whose son they were, this is, this is who they relate to back in the past, hey, this is the, these are the priests they're descended from. Genealogies are a big, big deal, especially when you think about Christ. The line of Christ, that, that red, that golden thread that goes all the way through the Old Testament, hey, who is going to be in the line of the Messiah? That when the Old Testament said he's going to be born in the town of Bethlehem, that's important because when Mary and Joseph were told to uh, sign up for the, uh, oh gosh, the census. I don't know why I forgot that word, census. Um, They were told to go back to the city of their fathers. So they went back to Bethlehem. You knew where you were from and you knew who you were from. Those were big deals. And so those were always kept in in the records, and you always had an account of that. So Old Testament direct revelation, official written records and genealogies and events, and oral tradition, which we've been over. So those are the three big ones that give us the Old Testament. Oral tradition, direct revelation, written genealogies, and events. Um, On oral tradition... A great one for that. Deuteronomy 6. You may have heard it called the Shema. Um, Shema is, means listen or hear. And so God begins this area of, of, of Deuteronomy 6 with hear, O Israel. Shema, O Israel. Listen. I'm about to tell you something. These words I am commanding you today must be kept in your mind, and you must teach them to your children and speak of them as you sit in your house, as you walk along the road, as you lie down, and as you get up. You should tie them as a reminder on your forearm and fasten them as symbols on your forehead. Inscribe them on the door frames of your houses and gates. This was a command given to all the people in Israel. Carpenters, shepherds, uh, men, women. Everyone was given this command. Israel, the nation, priests. Remember these words. Tell them to your children. Keep them in your heart. That I would tell you the words, Ezra or Nehemiah or a priest would read the Torah or the prophets or whoever they had at that time. They would read the words of God and I would remember them, memorize them, and then speak them to my family. Jesus is our foremost authority on the Old Testament um, as the exact representation of God. He is the one that we look to uh, for, hey, is the Old Testament inspired? How did people back then think of the Old Testament? Matthew 5.17, Jesus didn't get rid of it. He says, I don't think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it, to, make, to show you how it all comes to a conclusion. 
Jesus explained the scriptures, Luke 24 through 27, the beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. So all of the Old Testament attests to who Christ is. It was true because he says, look where this has happened all in the past and how it all points to me. And Jesus referred to the entire canon by mentioning all the prophets from Abel. It's mentioned in the first historic book of the Bible, who's the first martyr, so to speak, to die, to Zechariah in 2 Chronicles, the last historical book, um, and the last one to die for God, um, the last martyr. In Matthew twenty-three thirty-five, he's talking about from Abel to Zechariah. It's not just a, hey, from A to Z. It's fr- look at, at this time, across all of this time, this is our canon. And the prophets, which come after Chronicles in our Bible, it's not chronologic. The prophets are kind of sprinkled, sprinkled in the mix. Um, well, I said one thing that's incorrect. Chronicles is not our last chronologic historical book. There's Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther um, that occur after the uh, exile. Um, a couple of myths about the New Testament. I'm going to run through these really quick. One man picked all the books out of a pile. A man in authority picked the books that supported him and discarded the rest. Um, a group of men sat down and they picked the books. They had a pile of books on the table in front of them, documents. They picked the ones they liked and they threw the rest out. Or the Bible was edited and re-edited over time. None of those are true. We don't have any evidence of um, men sitting down with all these books and saying, we like these, but not those. Or um, Constantine in the 4th century is usually the one who they say, hey, he just picked all the books he liked. That's not true. And as we've said, the manuscript attests that it wasn't re-edited and changed all across history. Um, This kind of works like a story almost. Um, The apostles, men or men close with them, like Luke, Luke wasn't an apostle, um, wrote letters to churches. Men who didn't know Jesus, well, they told them the story of Christ's life in the Gospels. Or people who weren't there when the church started, they told them how it started in the book of Acts. Or... Um, hey, how are we supposed to act? We were Jews, but now we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Do we keep, what, what do we do with all the Old Testament now? How, do we, how does this change the way we live? Well, we talk about doctrine, um, correct practice and worship in Romans through Jude. Hey, how does how's Jesus change things? Um, and they tell of things to come in Revelation. They wrote these letters out to different churches. And it wasn't that these things kind of sat stagnant for a while, that these people saw that apostles wrote them and they accepted them. And they copied them, and they, we have evidence that they immediately started spreading them throughout churches. That, people, that we, they would take Paul's letters and add to them and spread them around. Um, Paul writes about this in his letters. Second uh, Thessalonians 3.17, 1 Corinthians, Colossians, he says, Look, I'm writing this in my own hand. This is from me, Paul. You can trust it. I'm the author. This is, this is the word of God. You, you can trust it. And so people would take it, and they'd... They'd copy it and send it out. In Galatians 6, 11, he even goes a step further and says, look, I write, this is my handwriting. I write in big letters. This is me, Paul. So people at the very beginning, beginning were scrutinizing who wrote these things and can we trust them? Well, Peter, this is the quote I was talking to you that's pretty funny. Um, he says, look, Paul's written to you according to wisdom and he does... Um, uh, wisdom of the Lord. Uh, he does this in all of his letters when he speaks in these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. So Peter's like, yeah, P- 
Paul's hard to understand. Like, he writes really confusing sometimes, and he's tough to understand. I get that. Um, but, and, but these things that are hard to understand, the ignorant twist and distort them uh, to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. So Peter immediately saying, look, what Paul is writing is scripture. This is inspired. And it may be hard to understand, but look, this is, this is the inspired word of God. Um, and these letters were copied and shared with other churches by 175 AD. So 175, we have evidence of circulating canons of what we have as our New Testament. Now, in 205, that all but revelation is there. So 175 on, you have the books of our New Testament being added. Revelation, people were really cautious about that, as I probably would too. Hey, who wrote this? John? Okay. This is kind of crazy. Like, there's a lot of wild stuff going on here. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, let's just be very careful. We know it's John. We know he was an apostle. So let's just be cautious about this one. It is beneficial, but let's just be cautious. So they were cautious about it. They didn't say, no, it's not a New Testament book, punt, and then later we brought it in. They were just cautious about it from the early writings we have on Revelation. And then to combat rapid growth, the Council of Hippo in nine, or 393 verified the 27 books of the New Testament. It was not to say, hey, there's a lot of writings out there. Let's pick the 27 we like. It was these, there are a lot of people writing heresy now and sending that to churches. We need to tell everyone in the church through, I mean, because it was, the church was all over the Mediterranean. It was going all over the place. And we're saying, look, we need to say exactly that these early books, these are the ones we're going to hold on to. There's a lot of heresies out there for the Trinity, and we'll get into some of those week three. Look, there's a lot of error. We're going to verify these 27. So they were not picking some and kicking others out. They were verifying the books that were already there so people wouldn't add heresy into it. Um, Okay, so here we are at the end, week one. Told you I was going to tell you. I've told you what I was going to, I've told you, and now I'm going to tell you what I've told you, so to speak. The Bible is reliable, five Ps. The Bible is three I's, inerrant, infallible, and inspired. And the New Testament, three A's. Apostolic, that's talking about their authority, that's talking about divine inspiration. It is attested historically, and it is accepted early, and only verified later. It wasn't accepted late. Accepted early, verified later. Um, Next week, we're going to talk, so what? How does this matter to our everyday lives? What is the implications of saying this is the truth? We're going to have some case studies for that to talk over. What, What does it mean for major issues going on right now in the news that this is the truth? How do I study the Bible? Can you study the Bible without a... uh, without any sort of Bible study tools? Sure. And we're going to go over a good, simple method that you can sit down with your word and you can read it and understand it and study it and, and learn from it. We're going, to go over, we're going to talk about that next week and then we're going to talk a little bit more about the experiential side of things, how to weigh that out according to truth. Um, I'm going to pray. Like I said at the beginning, we're going to devote ourselves to prayer. I know that was a lot of information. That was a whole bunch. Um, so if you have any questions, uh, we've got about three minutes, and then I'll pray and we'll head out.
Yes. Yes. Yeah. It, um, it, if you didn't hear, he asked, will it be easier to understand and digest? Yes, absolutely. And that is another way that this is really helpful because this will say what I've said, but in a very basic, simple way and ask some questions that you can write answers to. It's a, it's a workbook. Um, and so you can really solidify these things. Um, in a lot of ways, I was trying to be to cover more than we might want to know just in case, so that if there's some area you had a question about, I could try to fully answer that for you. The so what is going to help a lot in digestion of this information and application. This will, it, that it will solidify it in a lot of ways. Um, so the odd weeks will be a little bit heavier, but the even weeks will help balance that out really well. We're not going to do as much teaching as much as we are going to be doing Involvement, all of us working together. Yes. How do we use this book? Great question. That's what I was going to get to. Um, if you look at the table of contents, you'll see there's believing, behaving, and becoming one, two, and three. For next week, just do believing one. After next week, you'll do behaving and becoming one. So we're going to put behaving and becoming together and those will be after our application weeks and the believing is going to be after the belief week. If you only walk away with the, the simple things of this, the five P's, three I's, three A's, that's, that's great. That, that's, a, that's a win in my book um, because that'll help you answer some questions that you're probably getting and it's a really simple way to retain this information, excuse me, and we've recorded it, um, and we'll hopefully get this up online really soon, so that if you want to go back and listen to it and get more information, you can do that, and if for some reason you have to miss a week, we'll have it recorded so you can get it. If you have friends who have questions that you think, hey, they might benefit from this, you can shoot it to them, um, so we'll do that too. Yes, yeah, um, I have my slides are in PowerPoint right now, and so I'm working on reformatting those to have in PDF to send out to y'all so you can have all the slides and information. I'm at your disposal. Um, this class is only beneficial if y'all walk away um, knowing more and being able to serve God better. And so I want to help as much as I can in that. If you want to write down my email, dfitzgerald at watermark.org is my email. Um, if you have questions, great questions at watermark.org, that is an email that uh, we have about 25 apologists at this church who, when you shoot an email to great questions, they'll get back with you um, and help you with any question you have. Monday nights from 7.30 to 8.30 in room 7, we have great questions where you can come and ask myself or a couple of guys from that apologetics team, any question you want. Um, no question is off limits, especially those questions you, you might have been told in church when you were a kid, don't ask that. Come and ask that, because um, we'd love to help with answers. Um, so email, great questions, audio online, slides, I'll email those out to you, and um, 
Hopefully each week I'll have something that will be really beneficial that you can walk away tangible and say, okay, this is good. Anything else? All right, right on. I'll pray and then we can get on out of here. Lord, thank you so much um, for allowing us to be here together, for giving us a group of people um, who are excited to search out your truth and know you more. Lord, I pray that we would be diligent in action to apply these truths, that the truth we learn um, will drive us closer to you, that we will love you more and serve you better through what we learn, that this is not just a sitting theology, but this is a kneeling theology where we submit and obey and remember who you are and what you've done. God, I pray that any questions we have will be investigated um, and that truth will be found. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who guides us in all truth. We pray this in the name of your Son, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. All righty.